Good day, good evening, and good streaming, screaming, whatever you want. We're going to do something a little different this time. I'm sure some of you are as tired as I am of the dumbing down of broadcast news, where instead of many different stories from many different reporters from many different cities and places all over the world, it'll be one punditoid, and then they will cut to their panel of experts and uh, discuss the same issue for a good 15 minutes instead of having five more stories, three minutes long, to tell people more about what's going on. Well, that, that the other one, of course, is to have more news bureaus like you used to and more information, more reporting when the networks weren't all bought out by Reagan's host, you know, t- hostile takeover laws so that the news was supposed to make a profit from now on, blah, 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 blah. Well, we're going with that format on this one. It's not just me interviewing just one person. We have four people this time all comprising one of the best garage revival, garage sounding bands in the world, Gender Be Damned. And if you don't believe me, check out their new album, Snake Oil. Yes, I love them so much. We put them out on Alternative Tentacles. There's your corruption and uh, incest department, whatever you want to say there. Nepotism, that's the word I wanted. And uh, yes, and uh, you know, well, Drink your Kool-Aid, because Snake Oil is really, really good. And without further ado, here are, all together now, the darts. Hey, Hey, (laughs) Dylan. You barely say anything. That's (laughs) kind of out of character for you folks, I'll say that. uh, Okay, Um, why don't you, uh, for the audio people and whatnot. This is going out first that way, by the way, through ACAST into all them places, quote unquote, wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, let's hope we can tell your voices apart. So introduce thyselves one by one. All right. I'm Nicole. What do you do in the band? Oh, what do I do? Um, I'm Nicole and I um, do the vocals and I play the organ. <laughs> and at times play with the organ. A very yeah, well, you got to play with your organ. <laughs> okay, next. Hey, I'm Christina. I play the bass. I'm Eliza. Uh-huh. I play guitar. And I'm Mary Rose, and I play the drums. And you could also call me Beef. Beef. Oh yeah, you guys haven't met it's yet. What's for dinner? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to call you jerky, though. I really think that. <laughs> Are you vegan too now? Are you asking Beef if she's a vegan? No, I'm asking you, Jello. No, no, I was a Tyrannosaurus Rex in another life. Okay. Not as politically pure in the driven snow as some people might think. We won't offend you. Times a weird thing like that about me. Beware. (laughs) Ah, yes. There's a few people I'd be happy to dine on too, but yeah, uh, too. Although God dying on jared kushner you've got to be poisonous but uh, anyway okay <laughs> because we've got four dartlets on four little screens on this zoomaroo riverside kind of thing so we can see each other um one by one girls <laughs> i got my nun rolling pin on here we go what created you oh well um having listened to your podcast i knew this question was coming um so what created me was uh, 
two scientists, one from India and one from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who know and care nothing about music. <laughs> and, uh, um, I don't know. They, they, I guess, created a blank canvas for me where we didn't really listen to a bunch of music or anything. And it's just, I could create my own thing. And I grew up doing, doing what I wanted on that end. Well, I would assume they encourage you. I mean, I've met them. I mean, it's a family of damn rocket yes. scientists and stuff. Oh yeah. My mom, my mom loved you, by the way. She was so impressed by Jello when oh, she met him. I'm um, <laughs> He's creepy. Yeah. Crazy. They encouraged Handing it. They gave me my they... childproof glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some weird injection mold rubber thing. It's uh it's real psychedelic there. Yeah. Yeah. It bounces too. <laughs> so anyway, um, you, uh, you, you, you had real high powered parents for some reason. I either didn't know or forgot that one of them was from India. Is that your mother um, or your father? That's my mom. Uh, she was a physicist from India and my dad's a chemical engineer. Hopefully for the good and not for weapons of mass destruction. Correct. He he designed all those product medical products that like create artificial lungs and hearts and all that wow. good stuff. So. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. So I assume it was a high powered family expected you to behave and get good grades, but uh, Heck yeah. which you did. And then obviously, but then somehow didn't tame this other side either. <laughs> so uh, you, when did you, if, if they weren't into it, are you saying to me, even into music at all, which really surprises me for somebody with that size of a brain, but you just never know. How did music creep into your life in the way that uh, kind of helped make you what you are today? They bought a tiny little toy piano and they put it in the back of our van when we go on road trips and I would play it as a little tiny kid. And I think they thought this was a good way to, obviously I was interested in it. It was a good way to keep the kid occupied. So they paid for piano lessons and um, that's where it all got started. And I got heavy into classical piano for my entire childhood. Wow. Were you aspiring to be a concert pianist? There was talk of that. Um, I did the music school auditions and all that stuff. And uh, in, in the process, my mom finally was like, well, you're not going to study music. <laughs> that's not going to happen. When did rock and roll or rock music creep into you then? I remember listening to AM radio when I was a little kid and liking, you know, some of the stuff that was just happened to be on the radio, like, you know, Hollow Notes, Rich Girl was the first song I could remember. That was a pop song. I know. And um, well, they didn't corrupt um, you too bad. My God. Yeah. Well, it could have been worse, I guess, but um, it's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really get into it until a whole lot later. And um, like after college, even, I did jazz in college and, and throughout law school, I was playing in jazz trios. And wow. then um, law school, I think, no less. So yeah. <laughs> pre-law before that, or did you get a degree in something else first? Psychology. Wow. I went to Michigan where they didn't have a pre-law degree, so I got uh, a degree uh, in psychology because it was interesting. That's a good thing to have under your belt if you're going into law, too. Yeah, I liked all the criminal stuff, so it was good to, it's good to have the psych behind me. Yeah, and if you're going into actually being a criminal defense lawyer, even a prosecutor, it behooves all you law students or aspiring lawyers out there to also study theater and acting because you're Heck going yeah. to need it. 
yep there was a there was a lot of a lot of trial <laughs> prep that um that involved presentation like that for sure uh how where'd you go to law school university of arizona and which is how i ended up in there, arizona you're out, of, out of michigan or where did you grow up then you didn't grow up in india obviously no 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 they my parents met stateside um they actually met at michigan going both going to school there but um i grew up in chicago oh, okay. and um which is where Mary Rose is right now. And so, yeah, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And, and the only reason I ended up in Arizona for law school is they offered me a nice little scholarship to go there to school go. there. And it's like, well, yeah, it's free. I'll go. So that's where I went. So your first four years or whatever, where'd you go for that? I went, to my, my first, my undergrad was from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Okay. Yeah, my mom got her yep. master's in library science or whatever. I yeah. remember you told me yeah, that. Go Blue. South Haven on the... <laughs> West actual coast of Michigan. Been there many times, and many times. Once when I was real little, we were taken on a car trip. I'm sure my grandma was there, somebody because it was her sister, my great aunt Vera. We visited her in that great big mental hospital in Kalamazoo. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They gave her a lobotomy early on when that Ooh. was, a, you know, science that never should have been tried on anybody to this day. Of course, sure. that was where she spent the rest of her years. Yeah. Oh my gosh, and Kalamazoo. Remember that oh, one time. God. But there were also for a while Scott and Tracy, who were from Causeway, and then pilot Scott Tracy, who we put out. They were living in Kalamazoo. They were teachers and substitutes. And there was a little bit of the mental hospital left and they mostly wow. tried to empty it to other kinds of facilities, but there were some people too old and infirm to move. And they had a church for them there that was open to the public. So guess where Scott and Tracy went to church? In the mental hospital. Yeah. Yes. How appropriate. So, so <laughs> during law school, did you have any particular aspirations of what area you wanted to specialize in? Oh, I knew it was going to be criminal law from day one, because that's, even as a psychology student, I was already studying the prison system and criminal, you know, behavior and all that. That was my, where my interest definitely was. And I, and so, yeah, in law school, I just focused on a lot of trial practice and a lot of as much, as much criminal law and stuff as I could get my hands on. And what kind of criminal law did you go into after you passed the bar? I passed the bar and I was working for a judge in Phoenix while I was studying for the bar and he had a criminal docket. So I just watched criminal trials literally all day long while I was studying for the bar. It was really the best training on earth. And, um, you know, I, after I passed the bar, they had this huge hiring freeze <laughs> government wide all over Arizona. Um, and so I couldn't get a job for a while and I really wanted to be a public defender. That was my goal, oh, but they weren't right. hiring. I was starting to say boo-hoo, you didn't get to be a prosecutor. We're all so heartbroken, but you didn't want that well, in the first place, huh? I didn't, but then unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, the only place that finally started hiring was this tiny little suburb outside of a way outskirts of Phoenix. It was like a, literally they had one stop sign at the time and the, they were hiring a prosecutor and I took the job. It was paid very little. And um, I, I was a prosecutor there and it grew up around me and became this huge city while I became a judge there. And it, it, I was in the right place at the right time to be a prosecutor. But So you never did practice criminal defense law then? Never did. In fact, I was only a prosecutor for 
what four or five years and I became a judge so oh, well, there's a raise in salary and maybe you were desperate if they were not paying you that much I mean were they paying you so badly that if there was somebody robbed a bank or something on trial you took them aside said how do you do what you're doing and get away with it better I actually I have a shirt I have a shirt that says crime does not pay but neither does the judiciary <laughs> <laughs> No, then there was G. Gordon Liddy's quote when he was giving a lecture to a group of juvenile delinquents who were at some little <laughs> gathering, although they were still locked up. And I think it was Estes Park, Colorado, maybe. What do you mean crime doesn't pay? Of course crime pays. Otherwise, there'd be no crime. Exactly. <laughs> it was total job security as a prosecutor, I'll tell you yeah. that. It never stopped. Yeah, so, uh, so you did. You, you've been a judge for a long time now. Yeah, I was appointed when I was 27 years old, and and it, and it was a tiny little town still at that point. So they kind of took who they could get, I guess. I don't know, but um, and I just stuck it out and stayed there all that time. Yeah, because otherwise yeah. you're rising fast. You could have declared yourself to be, you know, nice and extreme right, like so many people in Arizona who hold positions of power are now. Hey, look at me. I'm so right wing. How about you put me on this, uh, like a, a one of the circuit courts and maybe, maybe court of appeals, and maybe I can be on the Supreme Court because <laughs> number one, I'm a woman, and number two, I'm evil as hell. It's going to go that way. <laughs> It's a it's amazing actually about Arizona though is the Arizona bench is amazingly solid from my point my skewed point of view I guess but they're not uh, as crazy as the rest of Arizona politics it's amazing they they appointed well I think and you know minor criminal offenses I think was your thing right so right. you didn't have any serial killers wander in or. Uh... Not unless they got the DUI. <laughs> and we had some of those. Well, didn't Timothy McVeigh have a license plate problem or a taillight? <laughs> yep. Son of Sam, yep. it was a parking ticket when they traced it back. I'm telling you, the craziest stories came out of these little crimes. You just never knew who you were dealing with, you know. And as, as so anybody who's watched that classic lawyer crime show, Perry Mason, Still an addictive show, even though I, you know, when I first right, was yeah. turned on to it, I was about 10 and all. Every show at the end, the real murderer confesses, <laughs> usually on the witness stand. Did you ever have a single case in your courtroom where the culprit confessed on the witness stand when somebody else was on trial? Ever? Not, not one single time. Did you ever? People tend to stick to their stories. Did you ever hear one of those or not? Even hear one of those? Hear one of, of, of a some, confession? Of, of a confession on a witness stand where. Oh, no. I, I Honestly, the way, unlike theater, the way the actual system works is there's a ton of discovery and there's a ton of interviews and there's so much that happens before well, you're actually sitting in the trial. Minor but... criminal offenses and not just lawsuits? Yeah. Yep. It's. It's amazing how much prep goes into those things. Even if you only have a few hours before the trial, it's still, you've, you've talked to everybody. You've talked to some people many times and you kind of, I don't know. There just aren't a lot of surprises by the time you get to trial. Because, you know, I was a criminal defendant once in a uh, test case to please Tipper Gore and that horrid attorney general Reagan had, who uh, was all about getting rid of porn as he beat off to his own corruption in the other room, Ed Meese. 
but but the, my memory of that is there was very little discovery at all. I mean, the LAPD had come into San Francisco, broke into my house when I was, you know, half asleep upstairs, not knowing what they were doing till they came up there, even went through the cat box looking for harmful oh, matter, you know, H.R. Giger's painting and all that. And they wanted me to finger Giger himself. Oh, he's in Switzerland. But uh, I don't recall a lot of discovery motions after that because they've kind of discovered what they wanted right away. There was about a week of the two sides arguing over instructions to the jury, which oh, yeah. are a key, key part of both criminal law and litigation and all, where a really key one was whether or not to admit my lyrics into evidence, to prove thematic content with Giger's work and Dead Kennedy's albums and whatnot, and after a real protracted battle, the judge let them in. They got admitted. Awesome. And the prosecutor, Michael Guarino, later admitted to a Zena, might have been Option or the rival of Option. I can't remember their name now. They, two people split. It used to be Op Magazine. Anyway, he said that as soon as they lost the, the hearing on admitting the lyrics into evidence, he knew he was going to lose the case. So I don't think it was that guaranteed. It was a deadlock jury, seven to five in favor of acquittal. He wanted a new trial. And then the judge said, no, no, no. We've played with the law enough. You know, case dismissed. Bye-bye. And uh, anywho, so that was, so So were a lot of your, your lot of your trials were jury trials then, or were they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, almost at least once or twice a month, we were in jury trial on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I just got through a call to jury duty. It was eight in the morning. <laughs> I know. How was that? And um, the the judge came in as how many people are going to fill out a hardship thing because he mentioned financial and health wise and this that and the other. And so I, you know, I along with eighty percent of the people there, and there were fifty to seventy five people there all raised their hand and the judge was just so taken aback oh well maybe we won't convene till 1 30 tomorrow because i'm gonna have to look at these more carefully and we're probably gonna have to bring in some more jurors and then somebody walked back in and there were only about four or five forms and they were going to read off the people who were excused i wasn't one of them nor was the woman who was eight months pregnant at least oh my gosh uh, but then Luckily, then the next batch that came in, I was right on top of the pile. You know, COVID, I'm almost 65 years old. Yes, be afraid, be very afraid. I am actually <laughs> in part because I'm asthmatic and I have a bit of a heart condition and COVID, a badass case of it that I could catch at a jury trial would not mm -hmm. be good for me. And that, yeah. that got me bounced. However, it occurred to me after I'd left, you know, if there was really any question of getting bounced, I could say all that and then say, and I am against vaccine, which I'm not. But, you know, yeah. As soon as they find out there's somebody scared of COVID and, and, and is also an anti-vaxxer, they're going to throw you out of the room and minutes count, you know. Well, I think having being Jello Biafra also has something to do with them. Maybe being yeah, like, but as a juror, I wasn't. I wasn't Jello Biafra. All my ID and everything. I yeah. My first name, because then if I get pulled over by the police or something, they don't immediately. Oh, it's this guy. Let's rip his car apart. It's like yeah. that. So I, I've never. I've never legally changed my name, and I see no reason to do that. 
Plus, there's all these people yeah. I grew up with or family that I feel really weird if they call me Jello or Biafra. So, uh, Eric, yeah. it is for the court system and a lot of other things. <laughs> so I I I, uh, I got out of there pretty quickly. Luckily, it wasn't like the very first time I got called where they just kept bringing everybody back day after day after day. And even though they got I got bounced, it was day after day after day. And there was another very old man who had a nephew or something with him who could speak English, who kept pleading. This guy, his only language he speaks is an obscure language in the Philippines, only spoken on one island. He can't understand what you're saying. Okay, dismissed. And then they drag him back to the next thing. At least they've improved the system from there, thankfully. Okay, so Judge Nicole, um, somewhere along the line, you moved beyond Hall of and Oats and commercial <laughs> pop radio, maybe during law school, maybe before, maybe uh, all kinds of rockers in the court system. No, I can't believe that. Anyway, um, at some point... Tell me a little bit more about the evolution of your musical taste and what made you actually want to not keep doing practicing your concert classical piano like Condoleezza <laughs> Rice still does, probably. <laughs> yes. Classical pianist, She's so good. you know. What made you? I know. At some point, you know, I got pretty fleet fingers and I love Jerry Lee Lewis. Maybe I'll do that. If you didn't do that, you did something else. So tell me a little bit about what made you. Uh, Go into, I don't even know if the Love Me Knots is your first band before the darts, whether there's other ones too, but let her rip. There were other ones. Um, I was at, just getting out of law school, even in law school and, and undergrad, um, there were bands that needed keyboard players and I just would sort of join them and not know anything about the pop music world and just sort of, follow. I mean, it was kind of easy to do after you study classical music. You can just tell me the chords, fine, I can play it easy. If I'm not doing too much, that's it was fine. And it was fine. And that was an electric but, um, piano, or had you already moved over to organ? I or was it a owned a, elect, I owned an electronic keyboard, a really crappy one that you know I would lug around sometimes. I had my dorm room and stuff. And then um, when I got out of law school, I became a prosecutor finally. They some actually, <laughs> it was a, a band called Sidebar, made of judges and lawyers. <laughs> They so played a bunch not. of covers in bars and it they played at like so the judicial boring. conference and like the worst places, the worst places ever. That, I mean, literally we played the judicial conference in Arizona. It was ridiculous. So anyway, but they were actually great musicians, um, especially with some of the guitar players who were amazing, um, court of appeals judges. Um, but they were just playing covers so I could listen. I could listen to a cover and quickly learn the keyboard part and that kind of thing. And then as we were doing that, I was like, this is fine, but it'd be way more fun to write my own stuff. So I started dabbling and writing music on my piano at home and um, really liked that. And um, the one of the lawyers in this band Sidebar and I started a new band for the first time ever in my life. Um, and we decided to write songs and play originals. And um, we started this little band and played every gig we could get in town usually for zero money and zero people <laughs> and uh just kind of learned the process of and and he knew a lot what, about music what, so 
what kind of music was that? Were you still kind of aspiring to be Elton John or? It was, it was more, it had a, it had a blondie new wave kind of feel to it. Um, I would say that's what most people thought, thought it sounded like. And especially we did it for a couple of years. And by the end we were getting better, you know, we were getting pretty good and I was starting to sing and it was starting to test those waters and everything. And it was that band that um, uh, the guitar player from the Love Me Nots actually came to one of those shows and came up to me afterward and said, uh, you don't know me. I know you've never heard of any of my bands before, but I want to start a new band and I have the idea for what I want it to sound like and I would like you to front it. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, and it turned out he was sort of this well, you know, you know the Love Me Nots. He, he turned out he was sort of really well known for his guitar playing all around the state and uh, really well credentialed on that end. And he put together this band. He picked Christina out of you know the world and said, Wasn't "I want Christina as a bass player." And I want eventually too. It was eventually my husband Michael. Yeah, and so he introduced me to <laughs> seriously serious Republican. Um, yeah, it was, uh, we didn't talk about politics ever because we couldn't, we just couldn't go there. Um, but he, uh, he was the one that actually said, you play all this stuff on this electronic keyboard. How do you like the sound of this Farfisa sound on your keyboard? And I said, that's cool. I like it. And he goes, well, let me play you some bands that used these kinds of sounds. And he played me the seeds and he played me the animals and he played me all this stuff that I had really never heard before. Wow. And, you know, I'm in my mid thirties at this point, late thirties, and I'd never heard any of that stuff. And he just flooded me with it. And I just soaked it up. I loved it. And we bought a Farfisa and we were off and running. Great. Okay. Well, and that was the Love Me Nots. And mm -hmm. th did the split, did the Love Me Nots split because you and he had split or? It was a big part of it. Um, I think, and Christina can vouch for this, it was getting more and more difficult to just politically be in that, not politics, but I mean, just band politics, to be in that band happily. We were all sort of growing apart with what we wanted and we were all sort of getting more and more miserable on tour. And by the last tour, we were in Belgium and Christina and I are lugging my Farfisa up the Belgian airport stairs because the Belgium airport had just gotten bombed like a month before. And it was, oh my gosh. It was the day it reopened after it got bombed. And so we're lugging all of our luggage oh, up the stairs and we're sweating and we're running to our flight. And we're, she and I are like, what? We're, why are we doing this when we're so miserable in this band now? Why don't we start the band we've always wanted with girls and do this thing? And that's how the darts was born like within a month. Yeah, I think that day was the end of yeah. the Love Me Nots and the beginning yep. of the darts. Like. Me and Nicole carrying the Farfisa like up this giant stairwell by ourselves with all of our other luggage going like, why are we in this band yeah. still? Like, let's start our girl band. Like, let's start another band. And so how much of the music were you writing in Love? Um, well, if you ask Michael, he might disagree, but I would say the majority of it. And he, he would come up with riffs once in a while for sure. And he was very good at he was very good at vetoing and editing my ideas and proofreading them and making them better, I think. But, um, but I would usually, I mean, you know, I write a zillion songs a day. So I was still doing that back then. Yeah. Yeah. You and Leslie Willis. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, 
but 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 the, the, there is a the Lovey Knots were a pretty successful band. Although the way things work nowadays, I had no idea you existed until I was DJing some little place. And where was it? I Glen think it was Zora. like Alex's bar. It's no, it was Rose. Wasn't no, it Rosemead? Was it oh, yeah, it yep. could be Rosemead. Yeah, it was not it Alex's. Alex's. It was way out there, a place I'll probably never never be anywhere near again for all i know yeah then at the end of the night oh there's this other band playing and it was a lovely night wait a minute this band's really good (laughs) this song is really good and boy have they got stage presence with these two look-alike women with betty page (laughs) hair and uh, shades and then the dude and then the uh the big old hollow body and then it was bob hoke was the drummer it, he was it? for a little while we went through a few different it. drummers but it was either him or jay at that point it, i can't right. remember and the, there's several love me nots albums too and they're pretty good damn good as well you know in no small part due to bob hoke and his magic in the studio and all which uh you know, also followed it, it followed you into the darts as well. And I think what you told me was the darts was going to be all women and it was going to be heavier, but still in the kind of the 60s garage template or the basis for the ideas and stuff. And you've maybe succeed, seated beyond any of our wilder <laughs> dreams. Yeah, ours too. <laughs> standing, I remember standing in the audience with, with you, Jello. Oh, so so I'm, let, let's, uh, sorry to interrupt, but. We have another voice That's coming, good. and I think it is time to. <laughs> well, I was just to gonna to say, Christina I remember. Now, but, uh, I, I remember standing in the audience <laughs> of the first time you saw the darts with you, Jello, and you were like, "I don't know, you know, I feel like I love the Love Me Nots, and you maybe made a mistake by quitting and starting this new band." And I remember telling you, "You're gonna love this band more." And you're like, we'll see about that. <laughs> and and then we get off stage and we walk backstage and you're back there after we played. And you were like, you're right. I like this band. And ever since then, like, it kind of like made me feel really good about this band. And now we're on AT and everything's sure? like happening. So, yeah. I like it better. You know, I, I, I mean, I guess Nicole and her correspondence is attaching all these reviews that have come out of snake oil and they're all agreeing with me and hopefully you it is a quantum leap beyond i like you but not that way which is already a cool album that we were very honored to put out but this one just kind of leapfrogged it from kick-ass great garage band to sheer magic at times you know the, the production grew and the the songwriting grew, the performances grew, because especially because there's more more focus on your voice, Nicole, which was something I was asking for. You know, there's some, you know, they, they, that's a one yet another thing this band has that other people don't. It's not just your standard woman or guy trying to sound like <laughs> Sky Saxon or Jane from the Shadows of Night or yeah. Jag or whatever. This is somebody to contend with who is her own thing, has got a real voice, etc. But now back to Christina. Oh, okay. God. <laughs> now, yeah. Oh, there's gonna be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we're 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 just getting okay, started here, my dear. What created you? Oh God, I don't know. I just I grew up. Uh, I grew up with a single mom who worked all the time, and I was home alone with my sister all day, and I didn't have anything to do except for 
listen to music and sit in my room and I had these little crappy like guitars and keyboards and I'd listen to all this music and all this like all I ever wanted to do in my life was just like be in a band and travel. And did, did you did you teach yourself how to play I then? I did. I well I I taught myself how to play guitar really badly when I was a kid. I taped it all up, all the frets, and I bought all those guitar player magazines. And then I started playing violin in school when I was in second grade. So then I learned how to read music and how to actually, like, do some techniques of music. But other than that, I've taught myself guitar and bass and all little bit of accordion but I just grew up just wanting to wanting to play music my whole life and travel and like it's this is all I've ever wanted to do and I love it awesome well you've you've had other things along the way obviously uh did you go to college too I assume I mean you obviously have a yeah have a career or a livelihood going I didn't I have like the opposite story of Nicole We're yin and yang for sure. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up with like a single mom who was like very like, do whatever you want with your life. Like it's your life. You have one of them. Go make yourself happy. And I was this rebellious kid that just didn't care about school at all. And I didn't think I needed to go to school. So I quit high school. And, um, I just didn't, I didn't care about school and I, I wasn't like in a family that made me do it and it wasn't important to me. And I feel like now as a grown up, maybe it would have been a good thing, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just started like I bartend and I play music and I'm, I feel like I've tried to be a grown-up and have grown-up jobs throughout my life a couple of times, and I'm not happy. <laughs> like, I don't what want a grown-up job. Jobs I, was a, out. I, was a, I was a supervisor in a hotel in the food and beverage department with benefits, and oh I worked full-time, and I hated my life. And it was like quitting that job. When I lived in San Diego about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I tried, I was like, I'm just going to have a real job like I'm supposed to have um, as a grown-up person. And after six months, I was like, F that. Like, I'm not going to do I just want to, like, work as minimally as I can and travel and play music and do things that make me happy and have quality of life for this one life that I have. And so I moved to Phoenix and I started playing music. And being in bands, and I feel like the way I grew up compared to Nicole is like she had this thing put upon her that was like, what you do makes your life important. And I didn't grow up that way. And I feel like what you experience and what makes you happy and the things that you do and the way you live your life is what's important. I mean, I'm just trying to do and you're a single mom too, i am yes it's hard it's definitely like not an ideal situation but she's killing it though she's doing everything she's doing an incredible job incredible uh, i have a 13 year old and he's a really good kid 
Um, and he's he's in school, and now I think school's important. Now that I have a kid, I'm like, yeah, school's important. Get good grades. You're going to go to college. All that stuff. He has musical aspirations too. He does. He's he in he? he's in it actually like a really good school that's a music and arts school. So he plays guitar and he plays violin and he's in choir and he's actually going on tour with us in Europe in June. Sir. Does that mean you're going to take your violin and there's going to be a string Perhaps. section on something? Or maybe he'll do a little, uh, little bass thing so I can go play in the audience or something. You know, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have to use a, you know, a lower bass. You know, one, your left hand would be the bass hand and everything. Do the Rayman. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, you can have your string section. Yes. He's also a great perfusa tech. He knows how to put my perfusa together. Yeah, well, I'm, you I'm go. psyched. I'm there psyched. you go. Sky's <laughs> the limit. Oh, yeah. Good, good, good. And now we get to Melisa, a more recent member of the Darts. You joined before Snake Oil, so that's the first album with you. Uh, she was on the previous album. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was like that? you, but not like that. I did that album, too. Michelle was already booted, <laughs> huh? Or did you... We erase her and put Melisa. Melisa on. started right before we started recording that. It seemed like it was really pretty cool. Right before we went on tour was... with the Damned, I jumped in like literally two weeks, wow. I think, before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, didn't you come from some kind of a metal background? I mean, even before that, um, here comes the question: <laughs> What created you? Not, not. Did you grow up in Arizona or somewhere else? I, well, I did grow up in Arizona. I was actually born in the Philippines. Uh, my mom is Filipino, uh -huh. but my parents moved back to Arizona to where my dad's from uh, when I was about two years old. So I grew up in a really small town about two hours north of Phoenix called Camp Verde. Boy, I never heard of that. It's yeah, small. No, I don't think anyone. <laughs> it's tiny. It's still tiny. I think my graduating class was like maybe 75 people. <laughs> um well, what, what, what was expected of you in that environment? I mean, it was a very small town school, yeah. unless you were bused to another town. And was there music around the house and you got to kind of do what you wanted? Or was it a very, <laughs> or were you expected to get married and have babies or something? Well, my mom and dad were pretty opposite on that whole stance because my mom, being Filipino, she was very strict about school and, you know, making that priority. My dad... Um, who's not a musician and was really into music. So music was on at the house all the time. And I got into wanting to play music at such an early age because I would just hang out with my dad and listen to records all day. You know, like I, I look forward to that on the weekends. And um, I really wanted to play drums at first, but my parents both said, no, that's a little noisy. Why don't we yeah, start <laughs> with something too. else? And so uh, my mom actually surprisingly, because um, she wasn't really all about me playing music, but she put me into piano lessons. And so I did piano for a couple of years. Apparently I got bored with it and I asked my parents for a guitar. And so made the switch over and started playing guitar, taught myself, just started jamming along to some of my dad's records. Um, he liked everything from classic rock to old country. So kind of started that way. What was his definition of classic rock? There's several eras. <laughs> uh, like, Some people think that Kennedy's is classic rock. More like like Creedence Clearwater Revival. 
Well, that that was a late '60s for all practical purposes garage yeah, band. Which... Even though it was people from El Cerrito, count of California, about as suburban as you can get north of Berkeley, singing about the swamp <laughs> right. and Louisiana stuff, they had a thing, man. I I loved that. That was, that was about my favorite thing on the yeah. radio when I revisited radio, as I periodically did in fifth grade. And my favorite stuff I was hearing was by this black soul singer named Credence Clearwater. Right. When I finally saw a picture of them, I was astonished. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but, I mean, really cool guitar stuff. And so to try and learn some music cool. like that was really fun. Um, I think that started my way into rock and roll. Um, I, I was more into punk kind of early on in my high school years. Not really metal. Um, I feel like my musical tastes have kind of shifted all over the place. But I was definitely a punk rocker at heart in high school. So that's kind of always stayed with well, there me. There you go. But did you go? Did you go to college later? Or I actually. So my dad actually passed away from um, cancer when I was about sixteen. Oh. And um, very sorry. Oh, thank you. It's okay. Um, my mom and I didn't really get along, and she didn't really want me to play music. And so that kind of shifted into me moving out, and um, I joined a cover band, and I moved to Sedona with some friends, and I just started playing music for the next few years. Um, Pretty much just as like. What is the way to survive in Sedona as a vagabond kid <laughs> yeah, musician? Yeah, I know. It's wild, right? Very rich people. Yeah, so I did that for a couple of years and then made my way to Phoenix. Um, got a job, just a regular day job, and still continued to play music at night on the weekends, cover bands in Phoenix. Um, the first original band I joined in Phoenix was a, a garage rock band with my friend Chan, um, called the Dead Eyes of London. Good band. Started playing some shows around Phoenix and, um, you know, started networking and kind of met some other people to keep playing music with. So college didn't happen until way later on. I actually just finished, <laughs> I just, just finished my bachelor's degree a couple of years ago. Um, and what's it communications. In? I wanted to do uh, something kind of broad that maybe I could incorporate music and arts into, but um, now I work at an audio engineering recording school called the Conservatory of Recording Arts in Gilbert. Um, so that's that's my go. day gig, but definitely trying to focus my shift to hopefully just playing music full time here sooner than later. <laughs> and are you learning recording engineering and all that too? I wish my my job's kind of boring there. I just I do financial aid for the students, <laughs> which is fun and fulfilling to help people achieve that dream. The stuff I've done with Al Jorgensen, you know, under the name Lard, and this place where a lot of ministry and Golden Cox and other things was recorded, Chicago tracks, recording, and, you know, the, the owner named Reed was, uh, you know, so weird with money that he paid his second engineer's minimum wage, no more. So there, the, all the employees plotted against him for the most part, including they'd intern or get pay, paid minimum wage there and then do their own sessions by night and slowly but surely learn all the studio skills that way and then go off as real engineers and stuff. And Crazy. Reed would kept wondering why his electricity bill was so high. <laughs> yeah. After that. yeah That's good. another way to do it, too. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that is the guy on the back cover of The Last Temptation of Reed holding up collages that Jorgensen and I made making fun of him where we weren't going to pay him. So. <laughs> well, 
we get into stories like that all night. We could, however, we still have another what created you story to go. Beef. Yes, Beef. Dateline Chicago. Beef. Are you still are you still with us? Oh sorry. <laughs> I had it me. Yeah. yeah. Right. We're ordering the we're ordering it's the like beef. It's like ten right, right now. <laughs> What's that? It's like ten right now, and it's like pretty late for me because I have a nine to five, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, where, where are you working? Um, at Crate and Barrel, but at the photo studio. But that's just temporary, you know. Uh huh. Yeah. Do you hop from job to job so you can keep playing yeah. music? And- <laughs> Traveling around. <laughs> well, actually, I was in the hair industry for a while. I actually owned a co-owned a salon for eleven years, and I just um, closed it last year. Uh-huh. So, Were you tired yeah, of cutting hair, chemicals, or uh... it just wasn't—it just wasn't my thing, you know. I just—I mean, I didn't go to college. I went to cosmetology school actually, because um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I just went because it was easy and um, started working at a, a few salons before I finally stayed at one. And I was assisting for a while. And, um, you know, the hair industry is tough. It's like commission only. So it's like if you're slow and you're not doing hair, then you're not making money, you know. So it's just like, oh, you only have two clients. So then basically you just made $100 in like a week or something. So it's tough. Yeah, it's it's really hard. Were you at a uh, chain salon, super cuts oh, no. or something? Hell nah. Good, good. I don't know if you ever heard of. Yeah, I worked I worked at Melio's. I don't know if you ever heard of Melio's. It was like the first like funky rock and roll salon in Chicago. Um, and then I got Never fired from the- there. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. <laughs> well, when we were working on Last Temptation of Reed, I was crashing on the floor of a friend of theirs, and she was a hairdresser. I don't suppose she worked there. Her name was Terry Wydell. Doesn't ring a bell. I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, she was trying to experiment with inventing the, the world's best shampoo and this and that, and I think I kind of, I hope I didn't rain on her parade too much when I pointed out that if it's really going to be that good, you're going to have to change it every time you shampoo anybody because of the pH balance and the stuff in the water. Yeah, and that's even different sure. in different parts of Chicago. So the you know, there there wasn't one magical solution to that. And so you 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 I assume they how how did you find the darts? How did they find you? Um. So I was in this band called Mystery Actions. It's an all girl punk band. Um, we played a show with them. We opened up for them. Um, 2019, was it, Nicole? I'm pretty sure, right? That sounds about right. And it was in Chicago. Yeah, like yeah. right before the COVID. That sounds yeah. right. So um, I was actually a fan of the darts. Um, my old guitarist introduced me to the music. He was like, oh, you would like these girls. They're really dope. And like, you would really like their music. And it was so weird. Like six months after I was like listening to them. That's when we ended up opening up for them, which was really wild. And um, uh-huh. and it was really cool because, like, at, uh, Amy from Amel and the Snippers was there. So it was just, like, all these badass women in one room. <laughs> Actually, Mary, Mary Rose came up. She came up to me at the, at the end of the show. She walked up to me and she said, hey, 
if you ever need a drummer, keep me in mind. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun night. <laughs> I wasn't trying were, to be shady or anything. And you were kind of used to having, being based in several, one or two or three towns at once and did some of your stuff by mail back when Ricky Sticks was the drummer. She was in LA, you were in Arizona, and somehow the album got made with real drums. You know, the truth is, even in the Love Me Nots, we were never in the same city because um, our our drummer Jay lived in Brooklyn. (laughs) So I've never had a band all in the same city ever. (laughs) Never happened. Uh Yeah, we just grew up (laughs) thinking it's not a big deal to not be in the same town. It's a fun. And we go on tour. It's more incentive to go on tour. We don't. We rehearse. We all rehearse solo. And uh, we, we know the tracks. We learn the tracks <laughs> yeah. like the back of our hands on our own. And then we literally land in Madrid on Monday morning. And we play a sound check as our rehearsal. And then we play the show. And that's how we roll. <laughs> Monday, Monday night. night. Monday yeah. night. Are you able to sleep on planes? I can sleep anywhere, but nobody else can. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know how you'd w- work that in and then get enough sleep and then do the sound check no. and everything else. I mean, I always try to get to the, no. if I'm flying over an ocean, to get there a day or two early so I can do a whole, you know, run around, sweat out the jet lag, work out a bit. Most miserable workout you could possibly yeah. imagine because it's such a wreck from the time before, <laughs> the night before. But then the next day, the jet lag is largely yeah. gone. And that's a real well, good Well, you thing. know, it almost works that we, we fly and we're so exhausted and we're just flying on adrenaline because we have to go right to this rehearsal and right to the show and bam, 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 and everybody just get everything set up and out of the suitcases and it's all a big mess and chaos. And then the next day, we finally, that night after that show when we would normally be jet lagged, we're so dead that we actually sleep through the night and then we're automatically on regular time the next day. So it kind of works. Yeah, that's true. Like you kind of regulate after the first night. Like you're so tired. You play the show just on whatever adrenaline you have left. <laughs> and then you finally go to sleep after like all the travel in the show. And it's true. Like you kind of like, sleep really good and then you wake up the next year and you're like okay let's do it let's go that's good you're very fortunate to be able to have that kind of a behavior of your human bodies although like another lesson from this is well if it's their first show of an overseas tour or they just flew back from Europe earlier today that might not be the best time to see the darts oh you'd be surprised <laughs> it it's actually like, probably really good <laughs> Because we're like, we're like crazier. I feel like we're like less like reserved. We're like, ah, this is going to be crazy. Uh-huh. Like, let's do and it. So um, you've obviously with both Love Me Nots with two of you and in your other bands. And if you need to go because you're fading because you got to get up tomorrow. Ms. Beef, I understand. Sure, I, ask me anything. <laughs> anything else you want to talk about? Because you're going to be leaving us first. So let's get back to you. Um. Well, what do you want to know? Like, <laughs> I suck. <laughs> Tell me I... anything. Uh, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Did you vote in the mayoral election that just happened in Chicago? Of course. Are you kidding me? I I like um. You know what? It's weird because it's like I have this love-hate relationship with like Lori Lightfoot, you know, but she had to go. (laughs) 
she was not doing great. Yeah, I think that was cool. Yeah, I've I've heard that from a lot of people. I'm finding out one of my good friends there who's a a go 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 litigator guy and stuff, but he uh, he is mm-hmm. a little bit more mainstream Democrat than I am when he votes, and he was not into Lori Lightfoot. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, he didn't vote yeah. for the first place, but also she is just flat out incompetent, and he has to go. You know, that was that was his reaction too, and he voted for the one who lost. Yeah, I voted for Johnson. Who was what the head of the school board or something? Brandon you voted, did you vote for the other guy who actually won? Brandon. Aha. Uh-huh. What's his yeah. full name? Brendan or Brandon? Brendan. Brandon Johnson. Okay. There you go. I gotta start learning these things and stuff. He doesn't <laughs> look as much like a space alien as Lori Lightfoot. Um, sure. I actually she almost hit me with her car two weeks ago. It was really weird. I was on. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was. It was really weird. Oh, that. That's she, was she had to go. her own car. They were trusting her to drive a car when she could barely run Chicago at all. No, I was like, oh my god, I was like really shook because I was just like riding my bike, and then all of a sudden she just slammed on her brakes, and I was like. Okay. That would have been such a fun lawsuit. Oh my god! Like, there was no, way to no go. Show for the I was mayor. like, "Why are you stopping?" Let I mean, look, the more tied in with Rahm Emanuel's people or the Daily Machine, they wouldn't go anywhere without a chauffeur driving right. them. Of course, that's what it was like <laughs> when I grew up there. Oh no, I'm like Jerry Brown. I got my little Plymouth, and well, I, maybe I can't. I don't know how to drive, but I'll drive it anyway. I don't know. Yeah, they, they, you know, at least Donald Trump wasn't at the wheel or trying to strangle <laughs> the chauffeur that day or something like that. How do you you, you voted for Brendan Johnson, <laughs> who politically, what I've read about, him strikes me as being much closer philosophically to Lori Lightfoot than the person who it seemed like the older school Democrat, machine Democrats and stuff were supporting the other guy. Um, how do you think if Lori Lightfoot just was in her head and had to, had to go. How do you think Brendan Johnson's going to do? I, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, they're pretty similar, but I just like, I haven't really like watched any of his interviews or nothing really <coughs> big has happened yet. But the thing is that's that what was like a major schools, thing right? was like Chicago CPS also like Lori Lightfoot, just like, yes, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, Lori Lightfoot just, like, was a shit show, and, like, the teachers were on strike for a very long time, too, so it's just, like, the whole system was just, like, fucked, you know, and I have, like, a lot of friends that are, like, teachers also, so, like, something has to change with that, like, you know, the kids, are just like the major thing right now. Like the fact that like a lot of schools were closing and like, where are these kids supposed to go? A lot of them are cramped up in like classrooms too. Yeah. And like, or they just end up staying at home because of their parents. But it's just like, yeah, the whole thing is just messed right. up, you know? Well, was was so, Lightfoot a reform candidate for that? Because of course the, previous two-term mayor who could have been three maybe but decided he had enough and 
people have had enough of him, it seems like, too, namely Rahm Emanuel, who still may wind up in Biden's cabinet if he gets a second term. Be afraid. Be oh very gosh. afraid. But what? But yeah. it seemed like at least the national <laughs> stuff I saw about him was he was just at war with the teachers union. And the teachers union seemed to have the better argument than he did by a long shot. And so was Lightfoot initially supposed to be seen as kind of a solution to Emmanuel's nonstop war with teachers? Or was she coming from somewhere else when she first ran? Um, the thing is that, like, I feel like she didn't have a voice in a way, you know, like she just like went ahead and just did whatever anyone like would want her to do also. And it's just weird because, yeah, like I said, it's like a love-hate relationship. Like, she seems cool, but at the same time, it's just like she'll do something really dumb. Well, you know? Brendan Johnson and I anybody just... else in that position in any office anywhere, whether you're a mayor or a governor or something like that, is suddenly you're not just answerable and representing the people who voted for you. You got to answer to everybody. And so you have to accommodate other views and other people's situations that can drive people towards the middle. Plus, in the case of Chicago or San Francisco, you have the machine in the background, too, who will fuck with you at every opportunity if they want to sabotage you as mayor. You know, the police union or whatever. Yeah, well, this one will be here four years and then they're going to be gone and we're just going to. We're just going to screw up every way we can or just mess with them and make sure that they get bounced because they can't get anything done. And then we'll be back in business. I mean, Chicago and Boston are notorious machine towns, both Democrat machine towns. Well, meet the third one. It's called San Francisco. And I spotted that almost immediately when I got there. And the same machine where the patriarch is Willie Brown, who was this all-powerful assembly speaker. Then he was the mayor. When the worst vote I ever made was voting for term limits for state legislators wanting to get rid of Willie Brown. And it got rid of Willie Brown. And then years later, he was mayor of San Francisco. So, um, and and then, but but Brown, I mean, it, it used to be the Brown-Burton machine, con- the two Congress brothers, Philip Burton and John Burton, who lost his seat eventually in Marin because he was high on coke too much. And was a state senator later but anyway there's a brown and the burtons and then brown is still kind of the the lord of the whole thing i mean feinstein is machine she handpicked nancy pelosi another machine person and uh gavin newsom the governor same machine and the current mayor who's like Lori Lightfoot, in over her head, but in her case, she kind of behaves like Aunt Esther on Sanford and Son and just throws these tantrums every once in a while, sometimes with obscenities. She's trying to govern by tantrum because she can't, you know, everything she tries fails because she's so goddamn incompetent and all she knows how to do is elbow people and step on toes and demand to get a higher office because otherwise you're discriminating, you're racially discriminating against me because I'm an African-American woman. You know, Kamala Harris becomes vice president and she's very vocal. That seat should go to a black woman. It must go to a black woman. She did not mean Barbara Lee. She did not mean Karen Bass, another outstanding congresswoman who's now mayor of L.A. She meant herself. 
And, you know, Feinstein retires. So she's going to go after another one claiming discrimination because that's, you know, that and her temper tantrums are all she knows how to do. But she's what the machine wants and she's what Pacific Gas and Electric, the power company wants. So they never get prosecuted for violating the federal law where they were supposed to have public power in San Francisco. The Raker Act, otherwise no reservoir inside a national park in Yosemite the O'Shaughnessy Dam, and they violated it ever since, and no mayor will challenge them. Every mayor must be beholden to PG&E and not mess with them. Willie Brown was one of their attorneys the whole time he was mayor. You know, ugly machine politics, and who? Kamala Harris is part of the same machine, too. They're getting everywhere now. And uh, anywho, so on that note, Beef, do you have any more of those or any other even weird adventures with your other bands or anything you would like to share with us? Um, so I'm in this other band and our, uh, the front person's a drag queen. It's pretty interesting because uh, <clears throat> touring is really hard for him because he has to get ready like right away once oh, we get back man. to the hotel. And it's just been interesting like being on tour with a drag queen because he doesn't eat he just puts makeup on and then he has to play a show and i'm just like dude you chose this life you know but it's pretty cool <laughs> i'm like there's no one there's not another band out there that's like beverage i guess which is why i was also a big fan of this band and they were looking for a drummer and i uh i messaged the lead singer and he's like hell yeah he's like i thought you would be too busy but like yes could you audition and of course i got it (laughs) you know (laughs) they're rad they're called beverage and the drinks and they're i i really like i can't wait for the kind of music is it i guess it's like we're considered punk music but I honestly don't know what category we would fit under because I don't know. I just, I can't really like put a genre to it because it's not like garage or it's not really punk either, but we're pretty like the sort of like alternative, alternative indie with a little bit of punk thrown in there maybe. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Now you got me going away with the indie thing because that could be anything. That's true. Uh Uh-oh. Indie pop now. (laughs) I hear that. I'm like, ah! No, it's not. It's not pop. It's not. A, it's not on the pop spectrum. I think it's. It's like it's. I don't really like pop music, so I don't think of it as pop. But like, it's catchy, and like all the songs are just like. Yeah. Well, I, catchy is like, good. Really we all like have it. these songs throughout history that are considered pop, but for some reason, they're really magical when all these other songs aren't to somebody like me or possibly yourselves. And there was, was a little bit more of a pop thing in some songs with the Love Me Nots than with the darts. It wasn't quite an occasional foray into Motown or something or, you know, Spectre Girl Group, but there was some inter- interesting things there. But um, now we will shift to something else. Okay, there's weird tour stories. We already have the staircase in Belgium and all that. <laughs> You know, what, what is it like being being the road band? But before we get to that, unless you want to start with that, um, the, the, it's one thing to have all kinds of weird-ass corruption and dumb stuff going on in Boston or Chicago or San Francisco, but then there's Maricopa County. 
where Phoenix is and who knows how much bigger <laughs> the county is. Or are you a judge in Maricopa County or are you in another county? Um, it's in Maricopa County, but it's a it's a municipal court, so it's a city court. Right, yeah. which also means, though, that plenty of people you went through your courtroom over the years <clears throat> were guilty or not victims of one of the most infamous, out-of-his-mind, out-of-control sheriffs in my lifetime. And that even means Bull Connor in the South and uh, Daryl Gates in the LAPD. You got Sheriff Joe Arpaio, of course. Well, we don't anymore, which is amazing. Maybe if he hadn't croaked, he'd be Trump's vice president this time. Who knows? But um, in other words, especially Nicole, as well as well as the others, um, well, let's let's get to your courtroom. What are some of the weirdest or most (laughs) ridiculous or most hilarious cases that ever came before? Um, Okay, my very first case. I'm a baby judge. I'm 27 years old. I've barely been a prosecutor forever, you know, for a few years. I don't really know what I'm doing yet. And I'm in this tiny town with basically not a lot of mentorship or direction. And uh, the very first case on the docket um, was a woman who was in custody and had been in custody on other charges for a long time. I don't know, many months, six months, maybe. But she was finally getting done with serving that sentence for whatever it was. And she was being brought to my court on an old warrant. And the warrant was for harboring a barking dog. So before she was sent to come, before she was in custody, she had this barking dog. I guess it drove everybody crazy. And this this ticket had been just sitting out there waiting for her to get done with her sentence. So they they hollered to my courtroom and... You know, the prosecutor and I and the, her public defender, we all look at each other. And we're like, well, this is a no brainer. She's been in jail for six months already. Nobody wants any more blood from that stone. So we're done and it's time served. It's done. Great. Easy. I was thrilled with my first case. It was over before it even started. It was wonderful. What I didn't know was that there was a reporter in the courtroom checking on me as the new judge. And the headline for the Gilbert Tribune the next day read, New Gilbert judge gives woman six months in jail for harboring a barking dog. That was my first headline. I gave somebody six months in jail for the barking dog. So I learned very quickly that I had to be very careful how I drafted these things. You don't say six months time served. You say, you know, one day time served. You you, you like craft it so it reads correctly for for posterity. And then the even sadder thing than that headline was that I got freaking fan mail for months from all these people saying, stick it to those barking dogs. We're sick of these barking dogs. We're so glad you came to swim in six months. I'm like, oh my God. Like this, it was crazy town. Like it, it's so hard to describe people. Were they the people who ran a kennel for Arpaio's bloodhounds? <laughs> I swear. You just, and was, this, was this defendant a person of color? Um, no, she was not a person of color. She was a, a white lady, middle-aged. Um, I, she might have been in for something like shoplifting. I don't know. It, was, it wasn't like she was some heinous criminal or anybody who would be targeted. It was just, and in fact, it was a very white community at the time. Um, so 
but probably classist. It seems like if the person had any money to pay a fine for whatever they were in for at first, they wouldn't be in there. I mean, it's a yet another unknown national scandal that people sit in some places, including Chicago jails, for years and years and years on some smaller charge because they can't afford the bail. You know, this was a real issue yeah. with COVID because um, COVID threw the whole justice system for a loop because we didn't know what, we couldn't get the tr prisoners transported to court because of the medical emergency. Somebody always was getting COVID on the wings in the jail. So they had to shut down the jail and not let anybody in or out. Well, if you're stuck in jail and you even you, if you have bond, they weren't letting you out. Um, meanwhile, as, as the municipality, we were picking up the bill for these people in those county jails and just paying and paying and paying and waiting for them to be transported so we could get their cases everywhere. It was a huge problem. Yeah. What other kooky cases? <laughs> so many. Criminal acts have, have come before you. You know, there's the ones that stick in my head are the silly ones, of course, not the, not the, the big ones. But um, the other one that I think, I think you would appreciate was the guy who was uh, growing flowers in his front yard and uh, his neighbors turned him in for violating the weed, the weeds laws for having weeds too high that violated the homeowners association rules. And that was a misdemeanor in this community. Um, so he was brought to court for having weeds that were too high. And his defense was they're flowers. I think they're pretty. They're not weeds. <laughs> you, know, you haven't defined what a weed is in this crappy little town code you've got. And sure enough. So yeah, we, we dumped that one. And, uh, I don't know. There's been a lot of dumb cases like that over the years. It's small town stuff. As the town grew, it got better. But those were early. Yeah, days. I do know a public defender who was in uh, Placer County. Now he's in Sacramento County where he lives. And I can't remember any of the specifics of some of the ones he had. And he's done several murder trials, some of whom he was able to get out of jail because they were innocent and stuff of just incredibly dumb things people did, especially to avoid getting cited for drunk driving or oh, something yeah, well. chemical. The two beer the two beer defense, we call it the two beer defense was was mentioned about a hundred times a day. Um and it, it's sad though because there really are a tremendous number of alcoholics out there that have no idea they're alcoholics or won't admit it and won't recognize it. And it's, it's a problem. I mean, it really is. It's a huge problem. Years ago, East Bay Ray, the old dead Kennedy's guitarist told me he'd gotten a DUI and, uh, but I only had two glasses of wine, but he flunked a breath test and he was mad at his lawyer or lawyers for failing to get him off because he'd only had two glasses of wine, but he flunked the goddamn breath test. Therefore, it was their fault. Yeah. Well, I saw over the, the many years I was on the court, I saw the science of breath testing and blood testing really change. And there was a lot, um, a lot of like, now you first, you, they would take a breath test and that was it. And then they had to take duplicate breath tests to ensure that it was the right thing. And then they had to space out the duplicate breath tests with like eight minutes apart so that your mouth alcohol would dissipate before you take the second breath. And the other, so there was, they, they got better at understanding the problems. There were some problems. There absolutely were problems with some of the breath testing and, and blood testing early on, but they've, they've got it figured out pretty good now. Have they ever figured out a way to properly measure whether somebody is driving while stoned, driving 
you know, know they don't uh air driving because of weed because you build up a tolerance after a while yeah. so one person smoking a small amount of weed is really really impaired like if i ever smoke weed again sure, how sure. powerful it is now versus other people who've been smokers and smokers a long time where there's a lot more weed and smoke going into them, but they're not as impaired. What do you do about that? Well, Arizona, I think most states have two ways to be DUI. There's being impaired by a substance, and then there's having, you know, an amount of a substance in your in your body. So if you're over the blood alcohol limit, that's one way to be DUI. If you have an illegal substance in your body, that's another way to be DUI. Whether or not it impairs you, you have this amount in your system. But the impairment thing is much more obviously subjective. And when I was a prosecutor, I would tell the juries in my closing arguments, you know, we're asking you to kind of be doctors. You've got to, you've got to look at symptoms and decide if a person was impaired. And you've got to, you've got to figure out, you know, can they balance? Can they focus their eyes? Can they count? Can they, what kind of impairment do they have? Do they have a medical condition before? There's a million things that they can't measure, all these confounding variables. And so uh, the impairment is a big question and tolerance is always brought up as a defense, for sure. How often does it work? Not often. I think <laughs> in, the, in the many years I was on the court, we had two acquittals on DUI in front of a jury, two. And that was, that was DUI for alcohol or for uh, um, both. Meat? One was alcohol and one was uh, the woman was on uh, some sort of painkillers. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. An, old, an older woman who clearly had medical issues to begin with. And uh, there's no way to figure out. I think the jury had a lot of trouble rightfully deciding whether she was impaired by her own conditions or by the substances she was on. And so she was acquitted. But um, I didn't really get a chance to dig into the jury's mindsets very often. The lawyers would go talk to them after the trial, but I didn't usually get to do that. So I didn't really get to, you know, dive into their, their thought processes. But um, the vast majority in that little town came back as guilties if you went to jury trial on everything, not just the UI. It was pretty consistent so um obviously i didn't find out about the love me nots for quite a while you'd been together for years and had all these cool albums out you were kind enough to send me later and were you putting those out or was your husband putting them out we were i mean we were together so we did it together and we decided early on that um we would just do it ourselves i was i had a job that could pay for some stuff and so we just decided to do it on our dime and we'd pay for the pressings and we'd mail it out to every place we could think of and I would put a tour together and find venues and you know we bought a van and we just decided to give it a shot so everything was on my credit card <laughs> kind of still is but but yeah it's, I mean that's we just did it ourselves wasn't the vinyl all pressed overseas is that where you sold most of it you know it was pressed by um a lot of it was pirates press and they it was done in the Czech Republic it was made right. there. They make their stuff there, but it was all through U.S. Um, right. U.S. places. Yeah, because Pirates Press isn't really a manufacturing plant. They're basically brokers. Right. Exactly. So exactly. Done that away. So yeah. you had a van, but 
it seems, unless I'm wrong, you found your way to Europe pretty damn fast. Well, that was one of my goals. Just like Christina said, one of the goals is to see the world. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was fast for sure. But uh, I, I literally made some calls and got a tour booked and just by emailing people and um, we did it. And we got signed to a French label, our very first Paris show. So it worked out well. Ah, uh, so you weren't the only label then. Well, not in Europe. Um, so that they ran with it with Europe stuff, but um, they really didn't do a lot of pressings. They repressed uh, our, some of our albums on like a greatest hits kind of thing at one point and released that. But mainly they helped with just distributing stuff there for us and a lot of help with the touring and the publicity down the line. Who so was that? That was Bad Reputation Records okay. from southern France. Uh, the reputation isn't bad enough for me to hear about them. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Eric, Eric Kubard, he was like amazing at Switching. press. He really got Love Me Nots a lot of like good press and he got like he got Love Me Nots in Rolling Stone, like right? Feature stories in Rolling Stone. Just incredible he was, what he got for us. Well, folks, it looks like the part two of the darts is going to come just a little bit later because we ran into technical difficulties almost as soon as we started rolling for part two. So it's going to wait until after their tour with hopefully fresh stories, new insights, and uh, maybe even some tales of Spanish ghost towns to pass on to Spindrift. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>